Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see you all here, to worship with you every week. It's such a blessing to gather for corporate worship. If I don't know you yet, if you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my privilege to continue our series through the Psalms this morning, Psalm 40. You can already begin to turn there right now. Now, if you are new to Sovereign Grace, welcome. We're glad you're here. All right, let's go ahead and take God's word and turn to Psalm 40. Psalm 40, we go through this wonderful psalm. This has always been one of my favorites, and I was just praying that I would do it justice. There's so much here. So thankful for this psalm, and I pray that it's a blessing to all of us. Psalm 40, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. Let us attend to it as such. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. 
You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers is blessed. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we have failed to be that blessed man, but we also are overjoyed to proclaim that Christ is that blessed man for us. And in him, we are blessed beyond measure. In him, we can delight in your law. And we come to your law once again. Father, help us to delight. Help us to humble ourselves before you as your spirit works on our heart. Help us to take these words and not just meditate for an hour, but meditate night and day that you may be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I know we watch a lot of different videos in our culture. We, we watch TV shows and movies. There's even so many little videos we watch now. YouTube and all those little clips and reels or whatever they're called on social media. We watch videos all the time. But I'll bet that most people in here would agree with me that the best videos you can watch at times are the ones about soldiers coming home from war. You know, you've seen these videos? When the soldiers come home and they surprise their family, they kind of sneak up on them at a restaurant or a, a school or my favorite is the sporting events when the kids see their dad or their mom and they literally run off the field in the middle of the game to go give their dad and, and mom a hug. I love these videos. What I, I think I love about them is that you get to see the family's authentic reaction. We get to see their screams and their excitement, the joy in their eyes and those tears of joy. And you get to see them. It always ends the same way. They're hugging each other like they're never going to let go. I'm not a crier. <laughs> you can ask my family to verify. But I have a hard time holding back tears when I watch these kinds of videos. Why is that? We love these things in our culture. We love videos like this, even if we don't even know the people in the videos. Even if it's not involving our family at all. Why do we love moments like this? Well, I think it's because we can relate to the joy and the relief that comes when we know the battle and the struggle is finally over. When we know the world as we know it is at peace and our loved ones are safe. I can't imagine what that must have been like on a grander scale at the end of World War II when it wasn't just a couple soldiers coming home, but it was all the soldiers coming home. And the whole nation rejoicing in that same way. Or when we gained our independence in 1776. I know we celebrate that in a couple weeks and it's a small taste of it. But imagine if you were there. Imagine the joy and the hope you would have for the future. For yourself and your kids and your country. Imagine the gratitude you would have for the ones who fought to deliver you. Look, if you can imagine what that would be like, if you can wrap your mind about how that would feel to be there, then you're ready to study Psalm 40. Because I believe Psalm 40 is written by David at a very similar moment in his life, a moment of celebration and victory for David himself and for all of God's people. 
Because you see, the background to Psalm 40 is when David was enthroned as king over all Israel. The first few chapters of 2 Samuel. So it's after the point when David was hiding from Saul in the wilderness. He's dodging all those spears that Saul was throwing at him. After the point when he's defeated all of Israel's enemies, he's anointed king and the whole nation rejoices. And David does amazing things in Israel right away. One of his first acts as king is to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. To put it in the tabernacle where it belongs. 2 Samuel 6 says. And it seemed God was dwelling with his people. It was God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing as he's always promised. And so the whole nation was rejoicing in the victory that came through their king. Now you're probably thinking, I read that psalm with you. I didn't see a lot of those details in there. How do you know that's what this is about? Well, look at the superscript real quick. The superscript just says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's the place we usually know. That's where he's on the run from Saul, on the run from Absalom. But we don't have that detail here. Usually it's the detail. Well, the reason I know that is because of what's surrounding this psalm. Now, the psalms aren't all in chronological order, historical order. But often they're grouped together thematically and sometimes based historically around something that's happening, especially in David's life. And I see that happening here. Turn to Psalm 42 real quick. This is right after the psalm. You'll notice it says book two. We're almost in book two of the Psalter. We'll talk more about what that means later. A few things have changed, but let me just point out at least one for now. Look at the superscript in Psalm 42. It says, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Not David this time, the sons of Korah. This actually is the first of the sons of Korah's psalms, and it goes all the way to 49. The only exception is Psalm 43. Now, who are sons of Korah? Well, they're the people that David put in charge. They're Levites. David put them in charge of the worship at the tabernacle once he became king. That's one of the first things he did as king. He put them in charge of it. And so we have these psalms that they wrote that are appearing right after Psalm 40. This is right after his enthronement. And then look before Psalm 40. Look all the way to 37. 37, it's been a long time since we studied this psalm, probably years now. But Psalm 37, verse 7, you probably recognize this verse anyway. 37, verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and what? Wait. Wait patiently. Look at Psalm 38, 15. Psalm 38, 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. David's still waiting. Look at Psalm 39, last week's Psalm. 39, verse 7. 39, verse 7, right in the middle there. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So right before this Psalm, we have David waiting patiently, even repentantly, Trusting in the Lord, waiting, waiting, waiting. Psalm 40, verse 1, what does it say? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. The wait is over. David's been waiting, waiting, and God has finally delivered him from his enemies, primarily, I believe, Saul here. 
And you'll see more of that as we go through. So this psalm is really important. It's, it's a transition in Israel from the, the King Saul era to the King David era. It's really about the rule and reign and victory of King David and the enthronement of Israel's king. Probably won't surprise you then that this psalm is also a messianic psalm. Because as great as it is to have David as your king, it's infinitely greater to have Christ as your king, the true son of David. And the spotlight in this psalm is really on him. It's pointing to David, but it's especially pointing through David to Jesus, who gained victory from the pit of death and is exalted on high and rules and reigns over all creation. So yes, we'll hear David's voice, and we'll hear our voice. That's some of the reasons why we love this psalm. But we cannot forget the spotlight in this psalm is on Jesus. It's his voice that we need to hear primarily over and over in this psalm. So here's what the psalm really teaches in a nutshell. It's God is our help. God is our help and our deliverer in Jesus Christ, the true king, the true king, the true final Davidic king. And then we'll break this into three parts. First, deliverance remembered, verses 1 through 5. Deliverance proclaimed, verses 6 through 11. And then deliverance anticipated once again, verses 12 through 17. So let's get into the psalm. Verse 1, deliverance remembered. And remember, by the way, remember, David's been waiting, waiting, waiting. And then what? Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard me. He heard my cry. This is David looking back on his life and giving us a personal testimony, isn't it? We don't know all the struggles that David had and all the difficulties, but we know a lot about his life. We know it from the book of Samuel. First Samuel 16, we find out that David is anointed king. Do you remember that moment when he's called in from the field and anointed by the prophet Samuel to become king? Then the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, he defeats Goliath. One of the best moments of his life, no doubt. One of the best moments for the history of Israel. And you would think that upon that moment, that would be the time he would become king. That would be the moment. Crown him as king. He's our general, our king. He's defeated our greatest enemies. But what happened? Saul turned the whole nation against David. David was kicked out of Jerusalem, the very town where he should be ruling and reigning as king. And he was on the run in the wilderness for probably 15 years. 15 years waiting to become king. At one point, it got so bad in 1 Samuel 22, he delivered this little city called Calah, and he delivered them from the Philistines just to help them out, and he took shelter there. He said, surely I've helped them out. They're going to help me out. Saul heard about what has happened, and he went to go get David, and David asked God, are these people that I just helped going to betray me? Are they going to give me up to Saul? And God said yes, and so David was on the run again. It's almost as if he had nowhere to lay his head. As was said about our Lord in Matthew 8. It's almost as if he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3. It's just like our Lord Jesus came to this earth, earth and suffered in the pit of destruction, waiting, hoping that one day he would be made king. And eventually it happened. Verse 2, 
He, God, drew me up from the pit of destruction. Literally there, the roaring pit, the pit of ruin. Out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. Literally, it's a high ledge making my steps secure. Do you see? There's a huge contrast here. David comes from this low, nasty, miry bog of a place where he's stuck and vulnerable. And God takes him from this place and puts him in a place where it's a rock. It's sure ground. It's settled ground where he can go wherever he wants, where he can see his enemies come from a long way off. You see what David's describing here is I was dead. I could do nothing to fix myself. God did everything. He's the subject in every one of those verbs. Did you notice that? He pulled me from the pit. He set my feet upon the rock. God did this. David was passive in all of this. Now, what is David talking about exactly? Well, he never really was in a literal pit. He's describing his sufferings here metaphorically. But I do think that David is making an illusion. He's making a connection with himself and another kingly figure that seemed to always be in a pit. (laughs) You know what I'm thinking of? Joseph. Joseph put in a well, put in a pit, by his brothers, only to be pulled out of that pit to go right into the pit of slavery and suffering for years. And eventually he was pulled from the literal pit of prison and put second in command, a king over all Egypt, right alongside Pharaoh. And what do we have David doing? Going into the pit of suffering, raised out of the pit, raised to the throne over Israel. There's a lot more connections between David and Joseph that we could talk about. But you know what? The one that really matters the most is not how they point towards each other, but how they typologically point ahead to the final king, the greater king. And that's the point here. Jesus would come and suffer like Joseph, like David. He would be on the run for his life like David, with nowhere to lay his head. He would be rejected by his very own family like Joseph, by the very ones he came to save. And he would willingly, willingly enter into the pit of destruction, the pit of death for us. We confess this every time we say the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell, the pit of God's wrath, describing the wrath he would take upon himself at the cross. But on the third day, God rose him from this pit of death. And he exalted him, not just to the earthly throne, but to Mount Zion itself, in the heavens, as Psalm 2 says, to rule and reign over all creation as king, with all authority in heaven and on earth. So you see, as great as David's deliverance was, as Joseph's deliverance was, they were mere shadows. Mere previews of the great day when Jesus would conquer death and be enthroned as the king of this world. So how would David respond to his deliverance? Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth. What kind of song? A song of praise to our God. I love this because when David is delivered, he's not content with just praising God himself. He says, I have a new song of deliverance to sing, and everybody's going to hear it. In fact, everybody's going to join me. 
So he essentially revitalized worship in Israel. He brought the Ark of the Covenant in, like I said. He appointed the sons of Korah. He wrote a bunch of psalms. They wrote a bunch of psalms. And the idea was, I'm going to lead people in worship to remember this deliverance. We'll study most of those psalms in the second book of the Psalter. And similarly, when Christ Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, do you remember what happened in Revelation? When John weeps because no one is worthy to open the scroll, the scroll of God's plan of redemption and judgment, and onto the scene steps the lamb who was slain, takes the scroll from the Ancient of Days and opens its scroll, and what happens? The heavens burst forth in praise. Eventually the praise spreads to the entire creation, all the way down to earth. Do you remember what they sing? Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. A new song. What kind of song? A song of deliverance. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, God's deliverance of David led to praise and worship throughout all Israel. But God's deliverance of Jesus Christ leads to praise and worship to the ends of the earth. This is just a preview of that. And what does it result in? Look at the rest of verse 3. Many, many will see. See what? See the deliverance. And they'll fear and put their trust in the Lord. Verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the one who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. David's preaching this deliverance, isn't he? He's saying, look, learn from me. Learn a lesson from me. Don't be a fool. I could have taken matters into my hands so many times, and David can handle himself. Right? He dealt with a lot of really tough things. He could have killed Saul so many times. He even let Saul know it a couple times. But he waited. He trusted the Lord. He didn't believe the lies of the world, that God will never come through for you, that God will never keep his promises. He didn't go astray. And he's saying, don't go astray. I know it takes a long time for God to keep his word at times. And waiting can feel like forever, but our God is trustworthy. God always keeps his promises because he's this kind of God. Look at verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. Not just David anymore, towards all the people of God. God is multiplying his goodness and grace towards us. None can compare to you. Who is like this? The best person you think of in this world can't even come close to the way God blesses and cares and provides for his people. I love this. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. David says, I'd like to list them off, but if I start, I'm never going to stop. There's no way we'll come to an end of God's goodness. It's such a wonderful promise. But you know what I recognize for many of us here at times it's really hard to believe. We can actually be tempted to believe the exact opposite of these words. 
when God doesn't come through on our timeline, we can begin to think, well, you know what? God's doing nothing for me. He's not multiplying good things for me. Even though I constantly ask, he's forgotten me. The only thing it feels like he's multiplying in my favor is trouble, is pain, is sorrow. How can I call him my God when he treats me like this? It's clear that he's their God. I wish I had their life. But he can't be my God. Brothers and sisters, even though we might be tempted to believe this at time, and we can't see those evidence of grace in our life, the truth is that God is still multiplying his good works on our behalf. And if we were ever to notice and count up the evidence of grace in our lives, they are more than can be told. How do we know that for sure, even when we can't see it? We have to look beyond our circumstances. We have to look all the way to David's greater son. The greatest example of God's grace being multiplied to us in ways that we can't even imagine. He's the one who saved us when we didn't deserve to be saved. As Romans 5 says, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Listen, but God shows us his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, not once we cleaned up our act, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his son for us. You don't think he'll take care of you when you're waiting? The truth is is that God has and is continually multiplying his wondrous deeds towards us, just like he did towards David. No one can compare to our God. We should be responding with praise and worship as David does here. And that's what we see next. We move from deliverance remembered as he looks back to now deliverance proclaimed. And before he actually really gets serious about proclaiming it, he's going to talk about what he's going to proclaim. Verse 6. He says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Now what's going on here? This verse seems so strange to us. An open ear, what's that about? And God doesn't require sacrifices? Is it just me or did God set up the sacrificial system? He's the one that literally required it. What is David talking about here? Well, David actually, I think, is pointing in two directions. He's pointing back to Saul to a really sad moment. For Saul, a turning point in Saul's life in 1 Samuel 15. Now, you don't need to turn there. Go read that later. The whole, just read all of 1 Samuel. Really good. It'll help put some context to this. But let me remind you what happens in 1 Samuel 15. It's the moment when Samuel confronts Saul for his sin. You remember, God told Saul, hey, I need you to go wipe out the Amalekites. Wipe them from the face of the earth. Man, woman, and child, and all of their animals. All of them, gone. And Saul heard it, and Saul almost obeyed the Lord. He said, I spared their king. I showed their king mercy. 
Agag, and I saved some of their animals. And you know what? Saul had a really good reason to almost obey God, just like we do very often. He said, Lord, I showed mercy. Don't you? You're God of mercy, right, to their king? I saved their best animals, and guess what? I know how much you love sacrifices. We can use those in the tabernacle. I know I didn't obey it to the letter, but come on. This is what you wanted. Remember what Samuel said to Saul? 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obedience? Certainly, obedience is better than sacrifice. And paying attention, an open ear, is better than the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the Lord's orders, he has rejected you from being king. See what God's saying to Saul? Saul, you've missed the point. Sacrifices are a provision for failure. They're what happens when you don't obey. I've graciously given you the sacrificial system, but I'd hope to never give it to you. I gave it to you because you're sinners and you need atonement. But my goal the whole time was obedience, not sacrifice. It's right there in the law. That's the very reason I pulled my people out of Egypt. Leviticus 22, verse 31 says, You keep my commandments and do them. Why? Because I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. See what God's saying there? I delivered you to sanctify you. To make you holy. I delivered you that you might obey. I didn't save you so you could do whatever you want. Free you from sin and then just let you go. I saved you so that you could be mine. And you could glorify me as I intended. Obedience is what I'm after, not sacrifice. I want that from all my people and especially my king. Saul forgot. So the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit leaves Saul and goes to David as he's appointed king. And then now David, enthroned as king, Psalm 40, verse 6, says this again. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. I'm not going to be like Saul. But you have given me an open ear. The idea there is you literally dug out my ears. Kids, you know your parents say this to you. I need to clean out your ears sometimes so that you're going to listen. We hear that. Dug out your ears so that you listen to God and obey. That's what David's talking about here. It's all about obedience. I'm going to trust you. Look down at verse 8. He says, I delight to do your will. It's not just an obligation. It's a delight, oh my God. Why? Because your law is within my heart. See, this is not an arrogant statement by David. He didn't do this perfectly, by the way. We'll see that even in this psalm, and we know it didn't happen perfectly in David's life. But David is offering his body here, saying, I'm listening, Lord. I'm ready to obey. And you know what? I know the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to delight in your law. I'm going to listen and obey. And that's why he says, He says something astounding in verse 7. It's quite shocking, actually, when you read it. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. 
Do you realize what David's saying there? He's saying, I wasn't the only one waiting to be king. In fact, all of God's people have been waiting centuries for me. For me to become king. They've been looking at God's word, seeing God's promises, looking forward to this day. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman that would crush Satan. Do you remember Genesis 12? Abraham, the offspring of Abraham that would come and bless the nations. Do you remember at the end of Genesis when Jacob says, the scepter will never depart from Judah. David says, that's me. I'm the king from Judah. I'm the one that's going to bless the nations. I'm the one that will crush Satan. And in one sense, David is absolutely right. He is fulfilling so many of those promises, but in a preliminary way. He's actually being a preview of the greater fulfillment to come. And this is why I think David's not just pointing to Saul here and then pointing to himself. He's pointing beyond himself. Because David has one more really important promise. Not sure if he had it at this point in his life, but I know he's already thinking this way because of what he's already said. But in 2 Samuel 7, he has a conversation with God that that goes something like this. Lord, I want to build you a house. I'm dwelling in a beautiful home. You're living in a tent. And God says, I don't need a house. (laughs) I'm the Lord of the universe for one thing. But you know what? While we're on this topic, your son will build my house. And you know what? Your son will be king over my people forever. And so as much as David is pointing to himself here as God's promised king, he's also pointing forward to his greater son, the one that would fulfill that promise, not Solomon, all the way to Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus is the only one who can truly say this in an unqualified sense. That's why Jason read that passage at the beginning of the service in Hebrews 10. Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, quotes that as Jesus' very words. Listen, Hebrews 10.5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, He's quoting Psalm 40 as Jesus' very words, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I thought it was an ear. Now it's a body? The writer's actually quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint there, which they did a little bit of interpretation. The open ear leads to obedience, just like you offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's the idea here, is that this is leading to the obedience, and Jesus is saying, my body is given as a living sacrifice to do the will of my Father. Verse 6 says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Not like David, not like us, perfectly, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king because he would obey where David and I failed. He would trust the Lord where we failed. He would offer his body. He would have an open ear fully, and he would offer his body as the final sacrifice for sin so that anybody who's united to him by faith can be saved from the pit of death and destruction and wrath along with Christ. David's preaching the gospel here. 
He's preaching the gospel, looking ahead to his future son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And where does he preach the gospel? Verse 9. He says, I have told the glad news. I really wish they would translate that literally here. It's the word, if you translate it into the Greek, it's actually the word we use for gospel. I have told the gospel of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do you feel like you just read the same thing three times? You should. David is repeating himself intentionally. He's emphatic here. He's basically saying, look, I need the world to know who my deliverer is. They need to see who delivered me and who my deliverance is pointing to. Lord, they need to see your righteous and faithful and truthful. Your steadfast love endures forever. They need to see that you're the only hope for sinners like me. Why is David just overflowing with praise and proclamation? Look at verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. You see, David's saying, how in the world can I restrain my lips from preaching your gospel when you, O Lord, won't restrain your mercy from me? This is the result of deliverance. Preaching the gospel, praising God. For what? The rest of verse 11. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Oh, that's a glorious, glorious promise. It's one we so often forget and lose track of. I was thinking this week just how to communicate this and get this clear and wondering why we forget things like this. I started to think we live in a world where we're presented with problems and needs constantly. I mean, as soon as there's an issue, we get a text. As soon as somebody's in trouble, we get an email. As soon as there's a conflict, even miles away, we get a notification on our phone. It's just constant need and struggles in the world. And you know what? After a while, we can actually grow numb to them. And we can genuinely want to help people want to offer ourselves and our resources, but we don't have nearly the time or the energy or the ability to help everyone. And hearing need after need can kind of fill us because we're finite and sinful with this kind of compassion fatigue. I think I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. We can have this compassion fatigue where we just like, well, I can't help everybody, so I won't help anyone. You know, if we're not careful, we can actually begin to project that onto God and think that he has some kind of compassion fatigue for us. He has bigger issues to deal with than my little issues here in Bakersfield, the whole of California. He has bigger issues. You know what? I have confessed this sin, asked for help for this issue countless times. And I can almost just feel in my mind that God is rolling his eyes when I, when I say these things and say, all right, fine, I guess I'll help you again. We can start to believe these things about God and start to truly think, well, we're on our own. Brothers and sisters, we can't forget God never, never, never restrains his mercy from his people because of Christ. 
God never has compassion fatigue for us. He delights in doing good to us, even sinners like us. And His steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve us. And it's a good thing. Because as you know, when we're delivered from one pit, we often fall into another. And so does David. As he looks back to remember deliverance, he's proclaiming deliverance. And then finally, verse 12, he's looking forward now, anticipating further deliverance. Verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I felt like, Poor David, he's right back where he started. Doesn't he know you're not supposed to end psalms like this? You're supposed to end on the high note. Cut it off at verse 11. That's where it should end, David. And what's worse is that he's in another pit by his own making. It's his own iniquities that are overtaking him. His own sin, his own failure. Right after the things he confessed, I'm not going to be like Saul. I'm going to trust you and offer my life to you. I have an open ear and an open heart. I delight to do your will. But he says, no, my iniquities are overtaking me. How can David do that? Well, it's really simple. He's a sinner. He may be God's anointed king, but he's still a fallen king. Like us and like Adam. And we know by experience, don't we? Just because we have one great moment of deliverance, one great moment of faith, sometimes those great moments are followed by terrible failure in our lives. We might be saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. But oh, the presence of sin is rough. And the battle rages on, which is why we still need to look to the one who never failed, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord to deliver me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Lord, I need those promises once again. I'm looking to that king and I need you not to restrain your mercy one more time. And it's not just David's sin that's an issue. It's his own enemies. Look at verse 14. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! This is a righteous prayer for David. A righteous prayer for judgment. He's saying, I have enemies, Lord. I may deserve to be in this pit, but they are also your enemies. They're seeking to kill your king. Just as they would one day seek to kill your Messiah, his son. I know we have a lot of issues and challenges and We have a hard time praying prayers like this, don't we? But what do you think happens when we pray, your kingdom come? We pray, your kingdom come. We're asking God to bring mercy on us and deliver us from evil. Evil's not just this nebulous floating stuff out there. God doesn't cast evil into hell. He casts evil people into hell. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying along with David here saying, Lord, bring mercy to your people, bring judgment to your enemies. Wipe them out. David's in trouble here once again, surrounded by enemies. He's his own worst enemy as well. 
And so what does he pray from this pit? Verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Now this verse was very powerful to me. I can understand why David was praising God in the beginning. He's out of the pit. He's been delivered. He's seen God's steadfast love, but now he's right back in the pit and still rejoicing, still glad, continually saying, great is our God. Can we pray that prayer as well? When life doesn't turn out the way we hoped it would, even the way we planned it would to honor the Lord? When financial difficulties come, when illnesses surprise us, when one victory over sin is followed by a failure, can we still pray, great is the Lord? We can if we remember that our joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. Our joy is grounded in our faithful Redeemer and Deliverer, and He never changes. Our joy comes from looking beyond our circumstances to Jesus. And this is the blessing because David had to look forward through types and shadows to something he didn't really know completely. We get to look back and see it actually happened. And that he will return, Christ will return to free us from this evil once and for all. I love this quote by this pastor, Christopher Ashe. He says, we praise not because the present is easy, but because the future is glorious. That's our hope. And that's what David's hope is. Look at verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy. David says, I am nothing. I'm so unimpressive that when Samuel came to my house to anoint the next king of Israel, my father didn't even call me in from the fields. I'm so unimpressive that when I got kicked out of Jerusalem, only rejects joined my cause. I was the true king of Israel, and I couldn't get anybody to follow me. That's how unimpressive I am. But, but, the Lord takes thought of me. That's the hope of a sinner. That's the hope of all Christians. Look, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're hearing a lot of this stuff for the first time. I know the, the media and people kind of present us as, you know, we're just arrogant, bigoted, Bible-thumping fools that look down on everybody holier than thou. Look, we preach the gospel to you, not from a position being above you. We don't preach down on you because we're holier than you. No, we preach the gospel that saves us because we're poor and needy as well. We need this gospel just as much as anyone else. And the amazing thing is that God saves the sick. He saves the hurt, the broken, the sinner, not the righteous. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And the only hope for any of us is that God would take notice of poor and needy sinners like us. And he has. And we know that because he sent his son. That's why David can say at the very end, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Brothers and sisters, this is the source of our true help, our hope. 
not in our own abilities, our own strengths, or even our own potential. It's looking to King Jesus in faith, the one who lived and died and rose again for us to deliver us from the pit of death and hell and destruction. Let's pray. Father, we, wow, we rejoice in the finished work of Christ, knowing that in him we are forgiven, declared righteous. We are adopted into your family as co-heirs with Christ, and Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from us. That your goodness, even when we can't see it, Lord, is constantly being multiplied in our favor because of Christ. Lord, help us to trust that that's true, even when we can't see it. Help us to see it in each other as we come together to worship together and spend time together. Let our fellowship be a mutual encouragement as we see your goodness in your people, as you have promised. And thank you, Lord, for David and for his faithfulness and for the way you used him to point to your son. Help us worship as we look to Christ like David did. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.